Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? I'm very well, fit and ready. I even got uh, chatted up by a lovely looking gal at the swimming pool, so I'm mm. feeling good. Excellent. That's always good to raise the spirits. You can't go wrong with that. Um, Chris, we are doing something very exciting today. Uh, diverting from our normal format slightly, we are going to begin to talk about very specific strange anomalies on the No Country podcast as a framing device, mysterious framing devices for some of our ideas. And I think this is going to be a lot of fun. So would you like to present the listeners with our grand opening strange fortrian happening? Okay, well, we're going to kick off this episode with a look at the mystery of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. But this is just the first of a kind of what we're going to do with the free to air part one segments is examine uh, impossible things, a Fortrian world, Manong's jungle of imaginary creatures, strange ideas, uh, anomalous weather patterns and events, strange religions, cults, fads, odd people, odd happenings, things that don't fall into easy categories of explanation because we think those are clues to deeper mysteries about the nature of culture and the nature of truth. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So we will begin with Malaysia Air Flight 370. MH370 is how it is coded. Um, I remember when this happened. I remember it dominating the news cycle for several months. Uh, and we will get into some of the more interesting things some of those new ca- newscasters said at the time. But early, early, early in the morning, uh, on March 8th, 2014, uh, a Boeing 777 MH370 uh, went, it got to its cruising altitude of 35,000 feet. And then pretty much right after it reported in, stuff started getting very, very strange. So a Boeing 777, for people who don't know, is, let's see, let me make sure I get this right here. Uh, it's a big plane. It basically is, uh, looks like 63 meters long and a wingspan of 64 meters. It goes about 905 kilometers per hour. What is that in miles? I'm an American. What what is 905 kilometers? About 600. About 600. Okay, right on. So a pretty big plane, uh, 227 passengers, 12 crew members, um, and it gets to this kind of gap in airspace, right, where it is no longer communicating with Kuala Lumpur. It is then supposed to check in with Vietnamese airspace, and that is where everything gets very strange because it never checks in. And due to some, uh, depending on who you ask, conspiratorial or straight up just negligence on the part of air traffic controllers, the pilots, what have you, it uh, takes a different direction. It's supposed to be headed for Beijing. It doesn't end up in Beijing. It ends up in the Indian Ocean. Um, maybe, go ahead. maybe it does. We don't know where it ends up. But just before we go mm-hmm. any further, I, I think it's worth, if it's at all possible for listeners to uh, consult any kind of globe representation, uh, because I, I have I've been <clears throat> on that flight uh, from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Um, if you if you look at where that is in the world, uh, we are talking one of the busiest uh, transit routes that there could possibly be in both the air and and the sea. I mean, it is just absolutely astonishing to fly over the Strait of Malacca, which is not far away. I mean, it's Kuala Lumpur's on that. We are talking a massively uh, populated and transited part of the world. 
it it is not out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. It's it you know Micronesia is out in the middle of nowhere. If you go uh, southwest from Hawaii, for instance, you are out in the middle of nowhere very quickly. Uh, you're a long way from Central America. You're a long way from from anywhere. Uh, not true on the path of uh, Flight 370 at all. So it's a very, very trafficked part of the world in every possible uh, transit medium. And that, I think, is, is very important to, to remember that um, there were an awful lot of eyes and ears of many kinds uh, watching. Yes. Presumably. And yet, and yet, and yet, and I can speak from personal experience that the Beijing airport, at least, is an absolute nightmare to get through. It is true. <laughs> so is the Shanghai airport. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you can feel like when you have gotten there that, that you're still missing, right? Absolutely. We were on our yeah. way to Seoul. We had to go. I've been to the Beijing airport now um, four times on my way back and forth from Seoul. And every single t- by the fourth time. Rios and I just took a deep breath and we're like, okay, we're going to get through this together, you know? Um, So anyhow, yes, very trafficked area of the world, lots of flights in and out. Um, So the flight disappears. And what I wanted to do just at the top of the show here, before we discuss some of the more interesting aspects, I wanted to kind of put forth uh, what the consensus, and I use that term very loosely, by some of the more, um, you know, respected, this is from the Atlantic, for example, right? The more respected uh, papers and magazines of note tend to think about what happened to 370. And the basic idea is that the captain of the flight, a man named uh, Zahari Ahmad Shah, was apparently a very depressed guy who was separated from his wife due to some infidelities that he had with flight attendants. Um, He had two houses in Kuala Lumpur, and he stayed in the second house while his family lived in the first and spent all of his time playing an elaborate Microsoft flight simulator. Uh, One of those simulations, by the way, Uh, mimicking the path that 370 eventually took. Now, what he did, what they know that he did, uh, is that he flew the plane up from its uh, cruising altitude of 35,000 feet to 40,000 feet, and then proceeded to depressurize the plane. Now, I'll stop for just a moment because I guess you can't say with, with complete certainty that it was Zahari himself who depressurized the plane, but we can use the passive voice perhaps and say the plane was depressurized, which would um, at that height uh, or that altitude, I should say, killed everyone on the plane in a matter of minutes. And apparently uh, it's a relatively quick and easy way to go. Uh, Out of all the ways to go, uh, you know, you don't die choking and gasping for air is what I've read. Anyhow, once that happened, he, uh, he or somebody took the flight back down to its cruising altitude. Um, At some point, the cabin was repressurized, and it took this kind of zigzag pattern back and forth. Uh, The last time that it was seen was near the coast of Indonesia, I believe. And at that point, it came back on radar, or it would have come come back on radar if the... uh, radio uh, control tower at the at the airport there had been turned on but it wasn't it was turned off for the night uh, so those that's that's the quote unquote consensus and i thought that from there we can get weird okay well i i want to put forward a, a few different perspectives which are in the same register of things that that we do know about. They don't necessarily shed any direct light on on, uh, Flight 370, but we're all about oblique directions and uh, spiral possibilities. Uh, That was the most significant uh, accident to befall Malaysian Airlines, which is, as its name may suggest to people, is a government-owned uh, entity. Uh, I, in fact, did some work for them in with my advertising agency from Australia, and uh, 
really uh, thought very highly of, of MA, and, and they were very, very well regarded uh, prior to uh, Flight 370, had they had one of the best international reputations uh, going. Uh, but we've also forgotten uh, Flight 17, which was another uh, incident uh, where a, a Malaysian Airlines flight was shot down over the eastern Ukraine. I just throw that in that, if nothing else, that suggests some almost inconceivably bad luck for one airlines to deal with within, you know, basically a year's time. I think that's very, very odd. Um, it makes me think of the movie Fate is the Hunter with Glenn Ford and Rod Taylor and Suzanne Flechette, who I just always thought was so hot. And I happened to watch that movie again uh, the other night. And it's about a major airline crash with Rod Taylor as the, the pilot who dies within it. And Flechette is the only uh, survivor as a flight attendant. And the investigation um, does look at uh, conspiracy, and, and in that case, it's a Cold War sabotage sort of thing. Uh, there's a mysterious passenger. Uh, there are other explanations, and there's mechanical failure, of course. But very, very quickly, the story turns on pilot error, in this case, rather than pilot malfeasance directly. But when we look at... Um, the captain's uh, involvement in this, uh, it, it seems very shaky to me. Um, he was an, a Malaysian pilot of some real experience. I think a lot of the uh, mental health personal issues investigation after the fact seems very tenuous to me. But we could look only a year later at an obvious and very explicit suicide flight uh, by Andreas Libitz as the pilot crashing a German, the German Wings Flight 9525 in the Swiss Alps en route from Barcelona to Dusseldorf. Now, there is a very clear example, and, and there are several others if you go to investigate that. In, in the past, when there has been any evidence truly of pilot suicide as being the cause of a major plane crash. The evidence is, has been undeniable. Undeniable would be the term I would use. So I just throw that out there as one possibility. The other thing which did strike me a little odd, um, and I, I'm not saying it's the only thing, but it's another factor, another piece of the puzzle that isn't mentioned, is the cost of a Boeing 777, they're not just giving them away. Uh, what would listeners guess would be the uh, the list price? David, do you have an idea? Well, I do. I'm going to give a second here for them to think about it. It is uh, several hundred million dollars at least, correct? Yes, it is. And But... Uh, uh, you you do admit that you were surprised when I told you the, mm -hmm. the amount wasn't okay, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. yes, it's in excess of four hundred million dollars. Yes. Now that's a pretty substantial robbery if you want to look at it in those terms. And I'm not saying that's the sole cause or in any way part of the equation, but I think it has to be a factor when when you're examining this from uh, the investigative uh, approach. Any piece of the puzzle, any piece of wreckage uh, is significant. And I think that should be thrown into the mix. So mm -hmm. those kind of position, the, the things that uh, were known about at the time and were discussed heavily at the time. And the other thing that I think is so important to mention is that in terms of media analytics, we have a story here that is very special in modern times for the degree of dominance of mainstream media worldwide, the length of time, the total coverage versus the complete disappearance of it as a media story. I mean, it may come back from time to time, but really it has vanished off the radar again. And I think to me that is 
something worth studying from a cultural point of view of how something could be so important and pique such interest for clear and obvious reasons across many registers and, and ranges of reference and then disappear. And then disappear. Yeah, no, absolutely. And those mainstream media outlets had some interesting theories for sure. Um, theories ranged from everything from alien abduction to the Bermuda Triangle to good old Don Lemon of CNN uh, suggesting that perhaps the flight got sucked into a black hole, which I like and I think the news should return to. I think all of this stuff about following the science uh, is is level-headed and completely boring. I think we should go back to these kind of ideas. Why not, Don? Why not? Maybe it was a black hole. Maybe a black hole opened over the Indian Ocean and, <laughs> and Malaysia flight. is. Maybe they're now living uh, in a kind of, you know, lost, like as in the television show, lost type uh, time warp. Maybe they're in a, a lost world situation at the moment, you know? Who knows? Well, I think we have... Well, for, for starters, it, it's there's no harm in thinking like that because no one is providing much science and real, uh, clear, rational evidence explanation for what happened. So a little bit of speculation isn't really going to be distracting anyone. I think it's it's what is remarkable is just how much resonance with pop culture mythology, the event does have certainly lost as one of, I mean, one of the most important television shows and greatest disappointments, I think, of the last, uh, yeah. I don't know, 20 years. But certainly a huge budget show that that created its own mythology and, and had a cult following. Uh, multiple Twilight Zone episodes, the Odyssey of Flight 33 that does go back in time. You know, they, they first fly over Manhattan and they're, you know, there's a brontosaurus there. And then they, mm-hmm. they go through the barrier, whatever it is again, and they almost get home, but it's the World's Fair of 1939 and they're not really ready to handle a wide body jet landing. They have no idea what a jet is at the radio tower. Um, mm-hmm. My uh, there's a great episode called The Arrival about an airplane uh, accident investigator who's obsessed. I think it's one of the better t- original Twilight Zone episodes that doesn't get enough uh, coverage. And then my personal old Twilight Zone episode favorite, and when the sky was opened, which actually has Rod Taylor in it too. So there's another little connection there. We love missing. Uh, person stories. We love missing uh, airplane stories, missing ship stories. I think it's pretty hard to uh, not have your interest just sucked out of you like a jet turbine when you hear Mm -hmm. of this kind of thing. And I wonder if there weren't an awful lot of people uh, like me because I was just obsessed. I had an entire wall covered with old style newspaper I would get and I was printing out stuff. I just couldn't get enough of the, the whole story. And one day when I was sort of pinning up something on the wall, I asked myself, do I really want an answer? Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think this gets to the heart of, of why this really uh, got the uh, the fuel, so to speak, that it did, because it really it shouldn't have happened by any stretch of the imagination today. We, we feel we're, we're technologically uh, beyond that kind of thing happening, don't we? I would say so. I think that there is a conception among many people that there is sort of nothing left to explore save for the depths of the ocean or the space or, you know, going to Mars, something along those lines. I think that when it comes to the surface of the Earth, um, I think that we kind of take it for granted that everything is largely... um, well, it's largely uh, monitored, you know, and surveilled, you know, if not by government bodies, then by 
uh, individual citizens taking pictures of everything and uploading them to Instagram. Right, right. Well, so I think that's one side of this story that that needs peeling back. It is this expectation or this assumption that uh, well everything is kind of known and under control when mm-hmm. in fact that's clearly not the case. Uh, there is the 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 romance of of the, the lost airplane, the lost ship. Um, I mean, I think we can go back to the amazing story of Amelia Earhart, who I think is a, a someone who's kind of a hero to a lot of people. I mean, she, as uh, just to, as a reminder, she was uh, the first female to attempt to navigate the Earth in an airplane, uh, mm-hmm. and she and her navigator, who a guy named Fred Noonan, disappeared mm-hmm. in the region of Howland Island, which really is a remote part of. The Central Pacific. It's in Micronesia and is described as an unorganized territory of the United mm-hmm. States. I love that. I, you know, <laughs> an unorganized territory. Yeah. Um, she and Noonan were last seen alive in uh, in New Guinea, in the coastal city of of Laor, Let, as, as people say there. Uh, you know, this was the late 1930s. She was not yet 40. She was only a couple of weeks short of her 40th birthday. It, it's an amazing sort of um, history, heroic, mystery uh, extravaganza that I, I think deserves like an opera or something. It, it just, I'm not even sure a, a great movie does justice to it. There's too many possibilities with it. Uh, but certainly... Uh, the idea of um, conspiracies surrounded that uh, wartime-related uh, intelligence sort of conspiracies, uh, a personal desire to escape and reinvent yourself for various, you know, who knows what reasons. And Bermuda Triangle, yeah. Bermuda Triangle and aliens also figured into it. I mean, it's a long way from the Bermuda Triangle, but that same sort of black hole Don Lemon idea. Yeah. Uh, and there, there were and remain lots of speculation about what happened. Um, and also now the beauty that really it seems impossible that that will ever be resolved. I, I think it would be very unlikely for any piece of evidence to come forward now in that part of the world that would conclusively demonstrate anything. But it, it remains a haunting possibility um it certainly does and i i love the fact that you said that you know you do you even want answers because i think going back to the television show lost what the writers and producers of that show were able to do was create um a bunch of questions a bunch of mysteries what are the strange sounds in the woods what's going on in that bunker i believe at the start of its sixth and final season some uh enterprising either youtubers or redditors i can't remember which one compiled all of the mysteries that had as of that point the beginning of the final season been unanswered and they came up with 140 questions right (laughs) that that still didn't have an answer and so the tenor of the discussions was like okay how many how many answers are they going to get to here and the answer was uh none none because they started off the sixth season introducing yet more mysteries right um that they that eventually culminated in uh, the the hero not to spoil too much uh placing an enormous cork in the center of the island and restoring balance to the force it was very unsatisfying for people in in that respect but i think that their error from a storytelling perspective was not that they left too many questions unanswered i think that's perhaps the popular belief but i think that by uh sort of creating this mythology about the island that all boiled it down to a man in a black outfit and a man in a white outfit and the eternal struggle between good and evil forces I think that they should have just kept asking more questions, right? I think this is something that David Lynch with Twin Peaks has always been very good at, uh, where he will wrap some things up, but he absolutely refuses to 
answer or or explain himself about some of the other elements of his plot. So there's a, there's an element of us liking the fact that there will never be conclusive answers to some of this stuff. Well, I think you're being far too polite to the producers and uh, showrunners of Lost. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, 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 I certainly don't disagree with you, but I, I was an adamant fan. I, I felt like oh, we'd have watch party. We'd have, we'd have watch parties every week. Nerd alert, by the way. But friends and I would would Rios, me, and and some of our friends would get together every week and watch the the new episode of Lost through the fifth and sixth seasons. Okay, I I even thought it made a seventh season. But in any case, I think their their betrayal of of, of fan expectations and hopes is is the greatest failure on uh, really mainstream television that I can think of. It, it it was just a complete debacle. And I I think where they went wrong was their insistence on this this Bible behind the show, as as TV people say, you know, a, a very well worked out mythology, which they they never no one really asked them for that. They could have just kept that quiet. But I think it was obvious very early on that they didn't really have that mythology. They had no idea. They were making it up as they were going along. They just didn't have enough continuity to really keep track of that. And in mm-hmm. the end, they really didn't have uh, a mystery to reveal. It was quite, I thought it was quite pathetic. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I do wonder if the the problem, as you say, lies in the nature of an answer to the mystery, that, that maybe any answer would have been deficient and a, a really a diminished uh, version of any kind of wild speculation that fans would have engaged in. Uh, that could be, and, and that may be the, the secret to, uh, to Lynch's success of simply not, not having that clarity and not claiming to, of leaving things mm-hmm. uh, highly ambivalent and ambiguous and just sometimes bizarre. You know? There's there's a certain feeling you get whether it's watching the sixth, uh, or we'll say the final season of Lost and uh, Twin Peaks: The Return, when you start getting to the final episodes of those series, and you begin to like it begins to dawn on you, like oh yeah, Lynch spent about eight, well he spent pretty much the whole show with Kyle MacLachlan's character as either the evil twin. Or the kind of idiot dunce who can't talk, uh, this kind of weird slapstick comedy thing, you know? And you sort of get to the end, and then Agent Cooper reappears on episode, at the end of episode 16 out of 18, and you realize, like, oh, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna wrap up the way that I was, (laughs) the way that I was, the way that I was hoping it would. You know, um, to change gears really quickly and to, uh, put another point on your potential hijacking slash robbery heist angle of of the disappearance of 370. The cargo of 370 was very interesting. There were 221 kilograms of lithium-ion batteries, and uh, there was five tons of mangosteens, which grows in Thailand. Um, and a single mangosteen in the U.S. I think sells for about fifteen bucks. It's a very rare fruit um, because once it once it gets ripe, you have only a couple days to consume it before it goes bad. So I'm assuming there's a sort of freezing process that goes on. But it's a very rare fruit that I personally have never tried. And I did some kind of back of the napkin um, calculations about the about the selling price. Um, and if if we were going off of fifteen dollars per mangosteen, a mangosteen weighs about four ounces. There are 32,000 ounces in a ton. Do I have that right? I hope I have that right. If I don't, sorry. Um, uh, 32,000 ounces in a ton. Uh, so you do some division and then some multiplication, bada bing, bada boom. You have about a half a million dollars in fruit that's on that plane as well. So weirder things have happened. Stranger things have happened. If you're selling a, you know, if you're if you're selling a plane that's either going to be stripped for parts or used for something else, uh, and and you're including 
five tons of a very rare fruit and a whole shitload of batteries. It, you know, again, weirder things have happened, I guess. Well, one way to uh, to consider this, I mean, I'm a huge, uh, uh, well, I'm just fixated on, on airplane crashes and, and mysteries. Uh, when I lived on Lake Washington, which they often call the Lake of, of Lost Airplanes in Seattle, there's a lot of, uh, you know, smaller aircraft and seaplanes that have gone down there, and it's a very deep lake. Uh, I live now near Lake Mead in, in Vegas, and uh, I'm going to go diving around uh, where Howard Hughes crashed a plane. There are a few interesting plane crashes, and as the lake uh, gets uh, a little bit drier, uh, some of these wrecks are easier to find. Um, and of course, time in Melanesia, I mean, there's just, it's littered with some of the best diving in the world, wreck diving in the world for World War II aircraft. But then just around the corner from me is um, uh, Potosi Mountain, where Carol Lombard, the wife of uh, Clark Gable and a famous actor in her own right, she uh, she crashed in a TWA flight. So there's always something kind of, I mean, there is the tragedy of these accidents. Uh, there's the, the question of the last minutes. And I've always gotten very interested in the black box flight recorders, which... Um, mm-hmm. If you if you uh, know, there's of course nothing black box about them at all. It's worth checking out what a flight recorder actually looks like, because we often hear about you know the experts and the investigators are are searching for the black box. But if you don't have anything like that, any real evidence of what happened, uh, then you really do have a mystery and. In defense of Don Lemon and and the alien black hole uh, brigade, I I think there is a kind of um, natural tendency that way, because really, isn't that rubric simply, well, we really don't know, something beyond the normal, something therefore, uh, well, I think the word supernatural has to come in. If, If you just look at that word just... And don't get involved in the spookiness of it and, you know, all that stuff and just say, well, what does supernatural mean? And as in also, what does metaphysics mean? It just means outside of our range of explanations. And yeah, that's where a lot of stuff started, you know? Right, right. And I personally don't have any time for... I don't know, this kind of contemptuous attitude towards conspiracy theories or the supernatural, because I really enjoy maintaining a a feeling of not knowing what's going on in the world. There is a sense that it makes, you know, this sense of mystery makes everything much more um, interesting. I think that if you take Flight 370 and you take it at its face value and go with the current, uh, cons- again, c- consensus in scare quotes, um, it does create some rather haunting images, particularly of a depressed pilot flying a plane around for six hours that's full of dead people, right? Kind of illuminated only by the emergency lights. Um, that is certainly a kind of a kind of haunting and dark and poetic image to go with. But, you know... Outside of that, the idea that it could have been, it could have been adopted by aliens, it could have slipped into a black hole, it could have, uh, you know, th- there could be elements of you know some kind of some kind of madness, right, that overtakes somebody on that plane. Um, that idea has always been particularly spooky to me. The idea that you could get onto a, a plane or a boat or a bus and have some sort of strange possession occur of the person who's in charge of that thing and then they completely disappear it um these are all ways of engaging in a metaphorical and uh in enchanted sense with the 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 greater unknowns that we experience uh every day which can which can be both positive and negative I suppose. Well, there's a lot going on there. I think it is important to, to try to, uh, and one of the reasons why these things are so uh, intriguing is that that our minds, however uh, consciously or not, we, we do 
project them out into trying to to imagine what it was like being on board that plane because a fair number of us have have been on a lot of planes and we we wonder what could happen and it is a very strange i mean it's one thing to be on a subway train in new york with a bunch of strangers uh but people come and get off you know and they they come and go and it's weird things can happen but you're not so trapped with them and when you're flying over water you're flying internationally with people you don't know uh it's a strange situation and you know you you don't see the captain you you hear the crew's voices they do announce that uh i mean there is a lot of talk today about you know completely automated flights uh Mm. one of my friends who's a pilot is is saying that the uh, robotic aspect of this is inevitable because we're simply not training enough people to to really be human pilots in the future. And the aircraft themselves may change to the point where uh, that's even going to be harder to meet in, in a training educational sense. So uh, it may be inevitable that we will have uh, unmanned uh, pilot crews, you know, which... To me, that seems really scary. I, I, no, I mean, I understand yeah. pilot error. Yeah, pilot mm-hmm. error is always there, you know. Uh, and we have pilot error in our own lives, you know. Um, we, we, we don't think of ourselves as pilots, perhaps, uh, often enough. Uh, but I, I don't like the idea of being on board anything, particularly not over water, with nobody behind that door that that is a very strange strange thing Uh -uh. i mean would you want to be in that kind of a plane would you want to take a flight like absolutely Uh not okay absolutely not 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 just that i'll go one step further i don't want to get behind the wheel of an automated car um which by the way they are currently your friend is um has a good point but is very optimistic about about flight um and perhaps because it is an airplane and, you know, you're not in bumper to bumper traffic in Los Angeles or something, perhaps it's easier algorithmically to program it to do that. But I've heard uh, whispers that amongst, uh, you know, the Tesla employees that Musk is planning on actually giving up on automated driving as as a feature for future Teslas because there's just too many uh, crashes happening. There's too much to account for. They, they can't, they, it's apparently easier to go to the moon than to program a car to drive autonomously. Um, which is really funny when you think about it from a science fiction standpoint, the things that are, uh, coming to, uh, to fruition, right? Things like phones and satellite technology and billionaire space flight and the, and then things that just turn out to be beyond the realm of artificial intelligence to, to really master, which is, you know, the automated cars. So it's kind of funny to look at a film like Terminator and think, well, you know, the machines can't take over anything. I mean, we can't even get a, a Honda Civic to drive down the street without driving over a bridge. You know, the, the machines have quite a ways to go before they can orchestrate a full takeover in that way. It's interesting that you you mentioned that I, I came across something that uh, I, I it, it's a, a manuscript that I downloaded. Well, it was a published book, uh, but it you know appears just on screen as just a file. It's a, an anthology edited by Alvin Toffler. Remember him? He was famous for Future Shock, and that's a very interesting mm-hmm. book yeah. to revisit. Uh, I, I did that a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, and I was very surprised. It was. Uh, I, I remembered it as being a, a hugely popular, uh, well, number one best-selling book of its time, and I kind of forgot how seriously it was taken and how seriously it was written and conceived. Uh, and Toffler was no fool. I mean, some of those uh, predictions uh, were, you know, haven't come to pass, but there's a lot that that's that's very interesting about what what he did. But in this anthology that he edits. Um, there are some very major uh, science fiction writers and futurists. And Arthur C. Clarke has a very interesting essay there where he looks at uh, 
inventions that were speculated about and proposed in in fiction or popular culture generally. And those those that have come to pass and those that have resisted uh, execution or implementation and and may do so indefinitely. And it's a very, very... uh, interesting way because he, he does he lays it out in, in the form of a table and it's very very clear and you think wow that really is interesting yeah there are these things that came to that i would have never thought and then over here there are some things that you think oh yeah that, that sure you know that would have been obvious and no they, they're still not around so i i think that to yeah. link back to flight 370 this is again uh, a big kind of allegory about how our expectations about technology mm. and therefore the influence on our knowledge of the world and what is possible, how those may not really uh, always be, you know, on the money, you know, how a lot of things may still slip yeah. through the cracks. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite predictions that never came to pass just in passing uh, is the jetpack? Oh, every- you know, people say, "Oh, we were promised flying cars and jetpacks." It's like, buddy, people can't use turn signals. The with the with the jetpack, I mean, you could you could do a jetpack, and I've seen some very cool people who've done jetpacks on water, yeah. where there's a, a kind of a, a hose hooked into the. Uh, yeah, they do that here on Lake Las Vegas. It's crazy. It's cool. It's really. I mean, that's neat. I would love to do that one day. But, uh, but, you know, the kind of everybody has a jetpack kind of thing. You would be eating dinner with your family and somebody would crash through your window and become, a, you know, a big mess uh, by the fireplace. And that would happen very, very often. So, you know, it's this kind of, kind of human error. And when it comes to 370, um, you know, whatever you might believe, whether it's a conspiracy, the consensus, whatever, there is certainly a lot of human error that was involved in uh, this kind of disappearance, whether it's people falling asleep at the controls, uh, people not following proper protocol, the Malaysian government, which is notoriously corrupt, not wanting to look bad and not wanting to let certain things out uh, that, 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 you know, that makes them look like they fell asleep at the wheel. This is all a part of how the information was presented to the general public that, um, you know, that let, that deepened the mystery. You know, I mean, the, the, apparently the Malaysian government had information about the trajectory of the plane um, and how uh, eventually they, they allegedly found some pieces. And by they, I mean a guy named uh, Blaine Gibson who kind of took it upon himself to find a lot of the stuff. They found pieces washed up in... Uh, Mozambique and Madagascar to the west. Um, but, you know, the government uh, had people going further east to look for the wreckage for some sort of inexplicable reason, you know? Having people uh, think that the flight instead turned north towards Kazakhstan uh, was another big kind of uh, wild goose chase that, that people were sent on. So, I mean, you know, I think this is a, a, a huge and very interesting um, issue that we are facing right now as our technology increases. You know, we currently have in our pockets little personal computers that have more processing power in one of them than, you know, all the computers in the world, not even, you know, 50 years ago. But then at the end of the day, there's, there's people using them, people. And that creates an issue, doesn't it? Well, it does, and this is something uh, that I I want to uh, kick off with in in the the second part behind the paywall uh, extension episode uh, about how things can be true and not true simultaneously, uh, of how a, a real collision and schism between possibilities is is uh, revelatory of, of of some issues of culture and maybe a larger reality that we should really pay attention to when something can, you know, because we do have such amazing technology around us and we are so well monitored. I mean, I, our our cell phone companies know exactly where we are. I've got a beacon in my Mm -hmm. car 
that is there for car insurance purposes, which identifies where I am. So presume, I mean, we, we live under this, uh, well, many people I know have a kind of paranoia about being constantly observed and as if there's nowhere off the grid. And every once in a while, we get these reminders that, no, the world is still a very big and mysterious place. But we don't seem to have any uh, real marriage between uh, our international protocols and political uh, capabilities and our technology, you know, technological uh, interrelationships. There seems to be a real uh, disconnect there. And there was a cross Flight 370s route. I mean, there really should have been a seamless transition of of signal that would have kept that uh, airplane, you know, on the map the entire time and in contact the entire time. So there really there are some very strange moments of the disconnect between the human element. And that means the institutional, different national elements involved, not just the individuals, but also the technology. But you would have to say that if there was uh, a human intentionality here, it was somebody who was really on top of a lot of different games, uh, not just flying the aircraft, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. They had to have a lot of... uh, well, they, they effectively had to have people on board, uh, so to speak. I mean, not mm-hmm. literally on board, but because an awful lot of strange things happened for that plane to, to for us to be in any doubt about its route after its mm-hmm. last uh, handshake, its radar handshake and, and, and radio handshake. Um, but one thing that I, I, I do wonder about is those, those pieces of wreckage on the African coast. I mean, as far as I know, uh, Boeing didn't never formally acknowledged those and identified Mm. with them conclusively. And Mm. I would have said that, I mean, if I wanted to, uh, you know, find out if a piece of equipment was authentic, I would go to the people who manufactured it. And I'd say, look, surely you have some way of identifying anything that, you know, has come out of your factories. Uh, and I don't think that happened. I think it's very, very, it's another peculiar element. Right. And I think that you touched on this, um, but when we talk about, you know, there's this kind of triangle and on one point there is, uh, you know, mysterious supernatural anomalies. On the other hand, there is, on the other point, there is human incompetence. But, you know, for people who issue things like the paranormal and conspiracy, there's that third tip or, um, uh, not a shoe, but uh, who actually go towards uh, this sort of malevolence is the other tip, which is, you know, intentional human tampering with these kind of things. I'm just going off the top of my head here, but it's not hard to imagine that a captain like Zahari might have some kind of deal with uh, some government that doesn't want people to know where the plane went, right? Um, Whether that's... uh, something as simple as a high up government official who's looking to sell a plane, whether that's for parts or for personal use to somebody who's looking for a discount. I mean, you know, you would think, Oh my God, you know, 227 passengers were, were killed doing this and five of them were children, you know, and then pretty much an entire uh, family got wiped out there. uh, Someone's son, you know, his wife and, and their, their young child all killed to do this. But when you think about the depths of human uh, depravity and uh, how many people are killed every single day for for less than the type of money that we're talking about here, I think that it I think it really can't be uh, overstated that that malevolence and direct human interaction, could be a part of that because people people who look away from conspiracies they always go towards human incompetence this happened in discussions that i had with people about everything from the the epstein uh murder maybe suicide maybe uh to things like 9-11 you know and the, the the whole idea is that the conspiracy angle would take too much coordination and communication and people just don't 
communicate and coordinate that well. I have a friend who is a, a civil servant who, you know, works for the city of New York, and he tells me, David, if you saw how my office ran trying to get simple tasks done, uh, you would never believe another conspiracy theory for as long as you lived. And yet, things like MK Ultra existed. You know, I mean, there there are confirmed conspiracies that that have happened. I think most people, if you were to ask them, said would say. That something fishy is going on with the JFK assassination, you know. Yeah. So it's this—it's—it's it's this balance, right, between human ineptitude and, uh, you know, conscious, uh, malevolent actors with agency who are trying to advance some kind of goal. And I just have the perspective on on certain elements of humanity that people will do almost anything for for power and wealth. Uh, wealth up to a certain point and then after that it becomes about power and I, I just don't put anything past people. Well I think that's a very reasonable point of view to have in, in this day and age and I think that is one of the hallmarks of what modernity has become particularly under the influence of mass communications which is perhaps its most notable feature uh, and, and to, to you know a, a large extent uh, the mass communications view of anything is what our view is unless we do adopt a conspiracy theory approach. I mean, that's almost the definition now of what a conspiracy theory is. It's something that is a digression from the the, the mainstream media narrative or explanation of something. But then, of course, the, the mainstream media often uses conspiracy theories to boost circulation and engagement and, and gives them more credence. So we're, we're trapped in this hall of mirrors, not never really knowing what's going on. And I, I think one thing that, that is, um, it's kind of an extension of, of seeing this, uh, of the, the plane as being worth stealing in some sense. Uh, but we don't really know. <laughs> Supposing that you did adopt a conspiracy theory, uh, look at the world, which I think is, has been very popular for well really since the beginning of civilization of any kind that there are a, a small group of hidden uh masters who are playing a kind of chess game with uh human events for their own particular ends so therefore the idea of trying to uh, interpret any one move they make it could be very difficult because we don't have an idea of, of, of the playbook of, of what's really at stake or what's going on. Um, but one of my uh, friends who is a, a media analyst, media scholar, often puts forward a, a baseline suggestion, not that he sticks with this overall, but he asks the question about and he thinks this is applicable to uh, to many uh, major events. Uh, he did a lot with the, the Boston bombing, for instance, the, the, mm -hmm. uh, the marathon bombing. But one of his key points is never completely dismiss the possibility that any event is a kind of an experiment to mm. see what public reaction will be, what what level of belief, how long can belief be engaged, what level of social control will be allowed, what levels mm. of personal freedoms will be yielded for uh, a, a delivered uh, or, or presented goal of, of social value in the media. And I, I, I think there is some, uh, I mean, when, when you mention MK Ultra, I mean, I think one of the things that is so very uh, disturbing about that, and there is some slapstick humor of a very dark kind also in, in those uh, stories. I mean, what an amazing era. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of 1960s San Francisco and and some of the bizarre LSD experiments, um, but a lot of it, there they were experiments in, in the purest sense. There was no clear uh, game plan really at all, 
And that was the terrifying thing. They were really, they were pushing the envelope of like, well, what happens when we keep someone awake for two weeks yeah. straight? You know, right? Let Let's not speculate on what they'll that they'll go insane. We We want want to actually know what hour they they go insane. Mm-hmm. Like when does when do they really crack open? You know, and I can really you know that's the thing that gets me is some of these people who are just you know, professional psychologists and MDs and really credentialed, respectable people going along with some of the weirdest uh, experiments possible. So, oh, and and unethical and 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 just awful. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. Well, I mean, ethics. God, ethics be damned. For you know. Minute, yeah. So no wonder, like, a few people took the idea, well, yeah, down below the desert of Area 51, there are cages and cages full of tentacled mutant uh, creatures, and maybe they're not from outer space. Maybe we mixed them up in a laboratory here, but they're not fit to see the light of day, you know? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I- I'm down with that idea. That's what, you know? Of course. Of course. Yeah. No, of, you bring up so many interesting points and so many that I would love to get to um, in part two. But I just want to mention one more thing before we kind of flip over to the second half where we will continue talking about this uh, and also do some of our fun segments, practical tips, dreams, things like that. But, you know, what we're really talking about with these malevolent actors and the sleep experiments and things like population control, how to control a population, I think people would do well to look into when the concept of a population even came into development, right? Or into the into the common knowledge, you know? Because for a long period of time, you know, you had, you had kingdoms, you had nations, you had tribes, um, but, you know, kind of as recently as maybe the 18th century, I think that's uh, it's like Thomas Malthus. I heard this on a podcast recently. I wish I could remember which one. But he did an essay on, uh, on population, right? And the idea was that all of a sudden this concept of population uh, was becoming not something that was a sign of prosperity, but that was becoming a, something that needed to be managed and contained, Right. So, I mean, we, we are now living in a time where that population, due to advances in medical science, has ballooned beyond our, our wildest imaginations even a, you know, even a century ago, right? And so it stands to reason that these same kind of people who are at the top of a food chain, who are completely fine with doing things like depriving people of sleep or feeding them acid against their either against their will or without their knowledge or, you know, you know, both maybe, um, would, would look at something like the approaching 8 billion people on this planet and be like, how are we going to rein all of this in and control it and, and keep this whole thing from, from going off the rails? And to do that, they might have some, um, some pretty weird ideas. So and some weird ideas that might not a- appear to to be connected to that project i mean i think that anyone who uh has any experience with a game like chess and and chess specifically knows that i mean one of the interesting things about it and it's fascinating on multiple levels which is why it has attracted the huge uh international historic interest that it has is that a lot of times the strategy isn't immediately apparent and even to people who are really really skilled and deeply experienced there's a lot of depth to it so we can never rule out you know any possibility entirely uh but one final thing just to wind up this i i I, because i think there is some sort of strange link to it i wanted just to to mention the the mary celeste mystery which is a ship a nautical mystery, uh, but but like uh, Flight 370, it really has never had any explanation, and I think that's one of its great uh, appeal. Is, is it, it's that it's it's very difficult to uh, 
find a, a, a real resolution, although there are some very definite theories. Uh, people may remember it was, uh, it was a merchant brigantine ship uh, that was found abandoned, deserted, ghosting along off uh, the Azores Islands, um, so between uh, Europe and Africa, in 1872. And no one knows what happened. But the thing that I find interesting, and this ties back with how the media treatment of, of Flight 370 is so important, a young Arthur Conan Doyle, this is way pre-Sherlock Holmes, wrote a sensational fictional account of this, which some people may be familiar with, called J. Habakkuk Jefferson's Statement. And it was published anonymously in Cornhill Magazine in 1884, which was a big publication for uh, the young Doyle. Uh, it is one of the wildest things you can ever read. I mean, it's not necessarily well written, but it is very, it is a bizarre look at an interesting imagination uh, well before he'd hit his stride. But what is peculiar is that every single aspect of the story really is completely abandoned like the ship or changed dramatically. And that became what a, a lot of people think of the story, including the name of the change of the boat from the Mary Celeste to the Marie Celeste. And he was absolutely stunned and had to rethink his career when it was accepted as, as a nonfiction uh, statement. And that's surely one of the big issues of our time today. Is it a memoir or is it a novel? You know, is this, did this really happen? You know, we're, is it, is it real news or is it fake news? Is that a real unicorn you're thinking of? You know, we're just, we're, we're, we're trapped in these weird contortions of mirrors about information and truth. And maybe what these mysteries uh, give us is just the enjoyment of something that doesn't fall into the grid where we may feel that we're trapped. You know, my insurance company may know that I'm not driving right now, uh, but nobody knows what happened to flight 370, you know, and I take a little heart in that, you know, that, that makes Absolutely. me feel a little bit less locatable. Absolutely. Well, with that note, folks, we hope that you will join us over on the Patreon side. We're doing some cool stuff over there. Check it out. Give it a look. Try it out for a month. See what you think. We're posting uh, blog essays. We are going to have a book club. We're going to have, you know, uh, happy hour with Chris. Uh, courses, um, all sorts of really cool stuff are happening over on the Patreon side. And if you subscribe this month, you'll get access to a back catalog that has now reached, um, this will be the 11th Patreon episode. So a lot of bonus bang for your buck for that first month and for the months to come. So see you on the other side. And one other little thing, which is just, we've got to keep reminding people, we have introduced an ongoing contest element. And we'll think we'll have quarterly awards of some special prize, both for part one and for part two. But unbeknownst, well, no, we're, we're telling you, so you're, you're beknownst. Uh, David is <laughs> given an assignment for each segment. I give him a choice of five words and he has to choose two that he has to use somewhere along the way with a degree of stealth and cunning that I'm very pleased to see is, is really, uh, it, it's growing each time. We, we just started this, and I can see that David has already mastered a level of duplicity and finesse, <laughs> just natural finesse that you can just see him, you know, swerving through this with, very, with you know, tremendous grace. But anyone who can pick out a key word, so he's, he uses two, and I have to say, this uh, this was very seamlessly done. Very, very well done. He's got a bigger challenge coming up on the other side of the paywall, he did, which he doesn't know. He's only given a couple of seconds to work out his choice. 
So there is an extra challenge to this. But people who do follow this little segment, I have something very special picked out uh, as an award. And I think we will have, uh, what do you say, they have quarterly uh, roundups of people who have uh, have a shot at, at what you've been uh, trying to pull past us. Totally. Yep. Sounds good. Yeah. Quarterly sounds good to me. I think that sounds fair. Okay. And one final note that we do have a contest going for our subscribers to create a new tarot card, uh, a new addition to the major arcana. And we have had some interesting responses. So there is, it's game on a game on and we encourage people to if if you have an idea that way jump over the paywall because the prize is a choice of one of two really cool books which we'll remind people about in the show notes okay yeah we yeah all right cool all right see you over there everybody see ya bye